It's a potentially traumatic event to ever suddenly see something that you've spent your whole lifetime not seeing. Meet today's guest, Tad Hargrave, author of online blogs Healing from Whiteness and Dear White Men. Today's conversation is the first of a two-part series on exploring whiteness and privilege. If you, like me, wonder things like, where did whiteness come from? What makes me white? And what can I do about that in today's world? Then you've come to the right place. This is the Supergivers Podcast. I'm familiarizing myself with your with your writing through the Dear White Men blog and really curious about a lot of things. And first of all, let's just jump into it. Um, how did you come to really identify your your whiteness um, as being something to explore? Well, you know, of course, that usually doesn't come from white people. Um, the It's very hard to see oneself, clearly. I mean, we're not just talking race now. It's, you know, if you write something a million times, it's very difficult for you to edit your own work because you're, you're too familiar with it. Um, Audre Lorde had a line, something like, a, we're all better at seeing what we don't have instead of what we have. Hmm. And so, so much of the articulation around whiteness, I think came from indigenous people, came from people of color, you know, and I'm talking particularly in North America and, and even more particularly in the States, people who weren't white, who from the outside were seeing this strange way of acting and trying to make sense of it. Uh, you know, I imagine for survival, because you've got to try to try at least to understand what these people are thinking who've enslaved you or uh, done this genocide on your people or uh, just oppressing you in general. One has to kind of figure out how they move, how they see things, what the worldview is, uh, at least from the outside. So I think that's where a lot of the these thoughts came from. And it, it, personally, that was also true for me. I started a project called uh, the Jams, uh, which I think the website now is yesjams.org. And it was a gathering for leading young changemakers around the world, a number of whom were indigenous and, and uh, folks of color. And that's where I started hearing this rhetoric of whiteness and white privilege, and, uh, I don't know, white supremacy, white um, all these things. They were new to me as a, a white male Canadian in my uh, – early twenties. And I, I don't, maybe peripherally had heard about these things, but, but not in a way that really had me stop and think. But the more I looked into it, the more I talked with people about this critique around this culture of whiteness, the, the more it made sense to me and the more I, I uh, began to consider it, I suppose, and let it have its way with me. So mostly from, from yeah, people of color. And then of course there's other white people who, had um, already been considering these things who were wonderful to be able to talk to and wrestle these things through with. What did it take for you internally to stay open to considering to have the willingness to self-reflect at this point? You said you're in your 20s when this, yeah. this sort of started to awaken in you. Yeah. I, well, it's a generous assessment that you're making. <laughs> it's very kind of you to imagine that I stayed open. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of resistance. Mm. It's um, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, it's the most underplayed moment in the movie The Matrix. You know, is when Keanu Reeves is unplugged and wakes up, and uh, he shouldn't have been able to speak for months. You know, he should have just gone flatline catatonic, in shock, mm. or had a back for you know what that meant. And so, I think for a lot of white people, it's very difficult to to come to grips with these things right away at least it was for me you know luckily i had a lot of support from a lot of friends and that's what kept me and it wasn't that i was i don't know so open-minded to it i was just wrestling with it and pushing back but i had people who were smarter than me who could push back and uh, i think that's so important for for any of us to have whenever we're wrestling with anything that's you know mm. feedback on, I, I don't know anyone who just loves feedback. Hmm. When I write things and people give me edits and suggestions, I don't love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan. Um, but it, 
over time give me a week and then I start to see the, the, the sense that's made of it. And so I don't think it's required that people are uh, happy about the feedback that they get. But I, I would say if there was something that got me through it or, or helped me through it was having people smarter than me who'd really thought these things through who, you know, if there was an openness, it was on their side. Mm. I think that they were, they were willing to give me the space to talk these things out and uh, engage it, push back, challenge what they were saying. Yeah. Uh, so I'm imagining these, there was something about them that helped set the container for you to work your way through this process without, yeah, I can imagine without your resistance or defensiveness turning into just like even more a polarized yeah. uh, sense of self or worldview. Well, yeah, because these are the times we're in, of course, I'm sure it's not lost on you how increasingly polarized things are becoming. Right. And it's, yeah, of course, I see this a lot you know, around this issue of race and the rise of white nationalism and white people and white men, I suppose, in particular, feeling confused about what to do and, and seeing themselves as the butt of a lot of jokes or uh, the expression of everything evil in the world and all bad things and young white men growing up with this very uh, potent, unarticulated sense of shame. Mm. Uh, you know, and I'm saying this firsthand, having spoke to some young white men who are going to alternative schools or liberal arts colleges, and there's this sometimes overtly expressed and sometimes covertly expressed sense that they don't have much to contribute to the world beyond you know, being an ally to people of color, or indigenous people, or their opinion isn't valid, that they, um, that nothing good has come from where they came from, or that, uh, that they're just bad deep down. So you know? it's so like ironic that, that the core wound of any white person right now could be a lack of belonging. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if I would agree with that assessment that it's ironic because Yeah, we could say certainly dominant culture has been white in the States. Um, most of the movie stars, you know, leading men, leading women are white. Look at the government, that's white. And uh, most of the TV shows until recently have been, you know, largely white actors. And then even when black people uh, or Latino people or, you know, various cultures do create art, it's then co-opted. Hmm. by white people are appropriated. And, right. And um, so one could make that case and then say, I mean, how could white people feel like they don't belong? But it, it, it beggars this question of what is what does it mean to belong and belong to what? Right, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, you can hang out with a crowd and you party together all the time. Things are awesome. You know, you're always going out, getting hammered. And, and then one day you have to move and you call on those same friends who've been your good time pals and none of them show up to help you move. And suddenly this whole, what, what was it that I thought I belonged to uh, really comes into question. And you ask so many white people about their culture and they'll tell you they don't have one. So, Oh, I'm just white. Um, and so I think for a long time, there's been this sense of, well, there's not much there to belong to, you know, and then enter the white nationalists who say, no, 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 you have this mighty, uh, mm. proud, honorable heritage of white people that you belong to. And this is part of the, the tension we're seeing is in the social justice scene. I, I think there's something becoming there's just something missing, I think, in a lot of the conversations. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying it should be there. I'm not saying it's even the job of people of color or anyone to bring it there. But there, there does seem to be this other extreme of it or, or 
polarized sense where if the white nationalists are saying, are engaging in a, a sort of self-glorification of whiteness, there's a self-hatred uh, amongst white people on the social justice side. And I don't think either one of those are healthy responses to where we're at. Yeah, backing up that original mm. that original comment, it's it's not necessarily ironic. It's like revealing of what's always been true, and we're sort of seeing the unearthing of the kind of the raw actuality of of whiteness. Um, yeah. So you're speaking about those polarities. What do you think would be a healthier response? Uh, learning would be would be all right. Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, what type of learning do you think? The kind of learning that doesn't turn into a new dogma and ideology, but leaves you a little bit more baffled and wondering and unsure and, and open. A kind of learning that might look at how is it that it got to be this way? How is it that white people are now in this position that they feel that their only choices are self-hatred or self-glorification mm. and that they're going to have to get off the fence one day on one of those sides. How is it that the trust uh, between people of color, indigenous people, white people is so low? How might it be that white people begin to grapple with these issues in a way that doesn't deepen the harm mm. that's happened. And, you know, what are the obligations attendant to us as white people? I'm not saying that people of color or indigenous people don't have their own obligations. Of course they do. But what are the ones that are, are unique to us as, as white men and, you know, maybe white people more, more broadly, because mm. I think it's a different set of responsibilities. So there's a lot to wonder about. There's a lot to be, be baffled by and other questions around, when exactly did we become white and when did we stop being indigenous? These are huge questions hmm. um, that just aren't wondered about very much at all. And what we're given instead is, well, which pill are you going to take? Hmm. The self-hatred or the self-glorification because it's, you know, you're going to have to pick a side sooner or later. Oh, such a painful binary. I'm hearing you say or, or just reference that concept of openness again as a as a key resource in yeah. how somebody could actually get through this with maybe more awareness, more learning. Yeah. Is there anything else that in your experience, I know from and from mine, I'm happy to, to add if if people want to hear I'm so curious to know as a, you know, here you are, you're this, you're this white guy. You grew up in Canada. Yeah. And you, I looked briefly just at your, your Facebook profile. It looks like you've studied, you know, Celtic and Gaelic traditions, which are primarily um, kind of Anglo-European white. Is that fair to say? Uh, like def Definitely not. Not Anglo. <laughs> so Anglo would mean English. Oh. Yeah. Uh, but Celtic would be I mean, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, Cornish makes that, but particularly I went to a Scottish Gaelic college and then Celtic studies was focused on the Scotland because that's where most of my ancestry is from. Yeah, but like super white cultures, basically, right? Well, let, let's pause there. Okay. <laughs> this is the propaganda of the white nationalists, is that Europeans are white and have always been white, but whiteness is uh, not skin color it's come to become it's become that mm. and it may morph and change again but it's a strange thing if you look back around the 1600s in the states you'll find uh, things written out where it says the natives the whites and the irish you know the whites and the ukrainians and the scots and so you start to see that not all Europeans were considered under this uh, umbrella of whiteness. Hmm. They didn't all identify as white at all. They were not seen as white. If you spoke Gaelic and you were Irish and were of a certain religion, you were certainly not white. And even in the early 1900s, I mean, there were uh, 
places in the States where if you were Ukrainian, it was questionable if you're white. And then if you're Jewish, are you white? Do you ever get to be white? And so what we see is that whiteness basically in the very early days of the States meant, uh, meant Anglo fundamentally. I mean, also basically rich, uh, upper class Northwestern Europeans, mostly Anglo, mostly English speaking. And that was who was white. And so it meant privileged. That's all it's ever meant from the very beginning. White was high society, polite society, polished, you know, all this. And then there, everyone else was, was other than that. And even though, you know, Irish people weren't enslaved, there was indentured servitude of a, of a, you know, number of Europeans. And, what happened was there's a, a moment in history you can look up called Bacon's Rebellion. And this happened in Jamestown. There were a number of rebellions because the indentured Europeans, the enslaved Africans and indigenous people saw that the white man was keeping them down. And so they you know, rallied together and they had a series of 10 rebellions. The 10th of them almost burned Jamestown to the ground. And so the elite, the whites, just realized they were um, in deep, deep trouble and they weren't sure what to do. Cause you can't just take away their guns. Cause some of them defend the frontier. You can't kill them. I mean, you're outnumbered, but also they're your labor force. And so what to do. And so the idea uh, as, as empires uh, often will do was to uh, divide and conquer. And so there was this basic deal struck again, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, to extend the domain of whiteness, to say, hey, you Irish person, you could be white. In fact, your, your kid will be white and they'll go to an English school and they'll speak English and they'll be able to get a job and then you'll have the right to vote. And there were a, a number of rights and privileges that were specifically reserved for whites that nobody else got. So these slowly got extended. And what that meant was they just weren't that motivated to work with the enslaved Africans and the, um, the natives anymore because it, life got easier for them. They weren't on the, the brand end of it. And so then it got expanded and expanded. So now pretty much everyone's white. But who knows? It may be that um, in the coming years, Hispanics become white. You know, this, this, this notion of whiteness seems to shift and change and, and morph over time. And, and it has these cultural elements where you can see that, you know, and, uh, I've heard natives, you know, they talk about the, the, the apple natives where they're red on the outside, but white on the inside. So there's a cultural something where people, and, and I've heard black people speak about code switching, where you speak one way with black people, but another way with white people, mm-hmm. a different kind of register, a different set of words, certain words you don't use. So who knows where this is, where this is going, but whiteness is certainly not that uh, my Scottish ancestors would have understood themselves to be white. They wouldn't have heard that term and, and it, it wouldn't have made much sense to them. I don't think it's a fairly recent innovation. It's, it's one of the more recent branches on the tree of empire and there's plenty of others, but it's one of them. Wow. And this is so fascinating to me because my first reaction when you corrected me was to feel a sense of shame, embarrass, embarrassment, maybe a little of both. Mm-hmm. And my immediate reaction is, oh, I have to cut that out. You know, like I don't want to be. And I, and I wonder if this is familiar for, you know, this is part of what we're talking about, right? So aside from your incredibly helpful three-minute history lesson, yeah. uh, which we'll come back to, here I am like a white male. I think I'm, I'm in a really open place of learning and, and looking at my my own whiteness like, how would you want to meet that what would you want to say to somebody in that place of vulnerability and shame response oh well well how could you how could people not feel ashamed mm. in this culture it's uh it's very understandable earlier you said oh painful binary you know this self-hatred and self-glorification and I, and I would open that up wider and just say binaries are painful yeah. Uh, by definition, you know, and of course, these binaries include good, bad, right, wrong, and you know, the victim, perpetrator, and we're only allowed to be one of those at a time. 
And so if you, if you didn't get the right answer, then you got the wrong answer. And then if you do something wrong, what does that mean? It means you're a bad person because we have good and bad. And what do bad people deserve? Well, to be punished. And so, I mean, how could we not feel ashamed? And then if you want to add on that, um, the compounding fracture of this addiction to knowing things, uh, the, the addiction and the, the, the need for certainty and to have everything figured out, um, you know, this, this could be understood as part of the expression of, of white culture and more broadly empire is we want order and structure and certainty and we know how it is. And so to, to, uh, to not know something, to get the wrong answer is suddenly, um, uh, how could there not be shame in that kind of a setup mm. because we're supposed to know, uh, whereas, and we don't hold mystery and wonder and uncertainty in any kind of positive regard in, in modern culture. It seems like modern culture is hell bent on this, uh, neon light elimination of, of any, anything uncertain, anything undefined and you know, everything needs to be put in a box right away. So I, I mean, hallelujah. When, when people, uh, feel a bit stymied, it's good. And, and that we feel ashamed. You know, I would just say for anyone who has felt ashamed, a useful thing is to turn your attention to the shame and to wonder about where is this coming from and what's happening in a culture that so many of us feel ashamed constantly and that so many white people might have the same response I have. What's, what's going on here? There's a lot to, to wonder about um, because to get stuck, whether it's self-hatred uh, or the self-glorification, to get stuck in those, both of them are narcissistic. Both of them turn all the attention back on us. And there's a world out there that needs us. It, it's not helped by us collapsing into a black hole of uh, negative self-regard. It's, it makes me think of my son, mm. a, a four and a half year old, he's identifying as male at this point, um, self-identifying, and just how hard it is for him to hang with um, not getting something right the first time, like whether it's zipping up his jacket or, or sure. putting his shoe on. And I, <laughs> I, I've been so, and I think my, my partner has too, we've been so conscious of creating at least the, the space to adopt the, the belief that mistakes are part of learning and they're, they're wonderful. They're, I mean, I don't, yeah, like it's just learning. It's not even mistakes. It's just like, and still, just absorbing that little, little bandwidth for let's do it again. Let's try it again. It's like, Oh my gosh, I screwed it up. I can't do it. Well, and I was just going to say, yes, yes. And then you come to an age where you get on the internet and then you make a mistake on the internet and oops. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's the end of you, Mm. you know, uh, in the social justice scene, I imagine the right wing has its own versions of this, but uh, in the social justice scene, I've seen many people. I'm not just talking white people. I mean, people call everybody down, canceled uh, because of a, a poor choice of words. So it, we're we're in a it's a minefield these days, hmm. and so to me, it's utterly understandable that people would be terrified uh, of making a mistake. And when a mistake happens, maybe this feeling, well, I'll beat myself up so much so that everyone knows I take it really seriously, you know, that that's going to somehow protect us. And so I think there's a real need for white people to be able to have people they can talk to who can help them through it because it's not, you know, let's say somebody hurts you badly and physically, emotionally, and then that person comes to you while you're still angry. You've not really process this yet and then they come to you saying you know guy when i hurt you i just feel so ashamed i'm wondering if you can help me through that because i just feel so bad about myself you know ever since i stole that thing or beat you up or cheated on you and i'm just ah god the shame is just killing me could you talk me through you see what i'm saying Mm -hmm. you'd be looking at them like why i'm literally the only person in the world you shouldn't be talking to about this (laughs) 
why are you coming to me to work out your shame? Like you hurt me and now you want me to help you through your stuff. And so uh, if we expand that culturally, people of color, indigenous people, a lot of people have been very uh, hurt directly or indirectly by, by white people. And so it's, it's just unlikely to get a good response. If you're going to go looking for, I don't know, assurance and self-esteem and uh, love uh, from from those people, it's I just don't think it's 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 the right place to go. Uh, is my self-esteem is low as a white person? Let me go to the ones culturally most hurt by people who look like me for the kind of insurance. It, it, not that it won't come sometimes, but it asks an immense amount of, of those people. And it's not that somebody might not come to you in shame who hurt you that, and you might have some generosity in your heart to help them. And you might, it might ask an immense amount of you to have to do that work. And I, and I see, this happening sometimes it just feels like you're going to the bakery and looking for a hammer it's just this is not where you go to buy it mm. there's, there's a better place um to go for those things what are some of the other just common missteps you see happening that in 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 this realm today you know i write this series of letters called dear white men there's a facebook page with that name and I started writing it around the time this um, fellow who's in the White House right now, whose name I won't mention, he uh, when he was running, and I saw how emboldened certain white men were becoming in a kind of overt, sometimes covert racism. But it wasn't the just the opinions that got me. There was a kind of a swagger, a jocular overly casual, arrogant tone brought to these conversations. And so I started writing about this and I, I see this so often. I mean, these are the, the, I don't think we can possibly overestimate the amount of pain there is in these conversations around race, particularly for people of color, indigenous people. There's so much pain. And <clears throat> I see so many white men, particularly on Facebook, because that's where I am mostly, engaging in these conversations in a way that so uh, doesn't honor and keep good faith with knowing that that's the level of pain that's out there. Maybe it's because they don't know that's the level of pain. And so they engage in a very, I don't know, intellectual, abstract uh, type of uh, devil's advocate conversation that doesn't honor the nature of the conversation. You know, if you went through a tragedy, I don't know, you had a dog for 20 years, it was, you, everyone knew, knew it was a close part of your family and then it dies, you see a friend and they just say, boy, I heard your dog died. Well, that's a bummer. You gonna, uh, you gonna taxidermize it or what? You know what I'm saying? In that tone, mm -hmm. you just, it would be so jarring for you. that You clearly don't see what this animal meant to me and that you would talk in this way and ask so casually when we've maybe just met and I don't know you that well. So there's something about, uh, there's a deep need to slow way down in these conversations to engage them with 10 times the amount of care you think you need. There's an old uh, tourism when you're, you play at an open mic, the best advice you can give somebody who's just starting is play half as fast as you normally play hmm. twice as slowly because if they do that, they'll be playing normal speed because you know, you get nervous and you start playing faster than you should. So there's a similar thing here. I think uh, white people around these conversations around race, we should be going about 10 times more slowly than we think with 10 times the courtesy than we think is needed. Uh, and then we might be, we might be getting there. And there's a lot of, you know, part of it is why does, why do we feel the need to comment at all? There are a number of comments that, well, you know, for example, a few months ago, I posted a meme by a woman, Michelle Alexander, who wrote a book called the new Jim Crow about the criminal justice system. And the meme basically said, white men are getting rich selling 
weed when black men were thrown in jail for years and are still in jail for this. It didn't even say, and that shouldn't be happening. It didn't say, and that's wrong. It was literally just describing the dynamic and a white male friend or not friend. It's, I, I barely know him, but kind of through the scene posts in this, he says, um, yeah, fuck all white guys. No, fuck all white people. And I deleted that comment immediately. And I just sent him a message saying, what's going on? You know, anyways, we ended up getting together after a heated conversation. We had, uh, we had drinks together and, and, uh, talked it through but that kind of reactivity doesn't serve to see something to feel triggered by it and then to say the first thing that comes to our mind in by a way of reaction it's because when i said it's a minefield it is a minefield but it's this different kind of minefield it's not the kind of minefield where you step on a mine and that mine explodes it's a kind of minefield where you step on the mine and other mines explode mm -hmm. so you get a little bit of that shrapnel but not very much, but everyone else takes it in the gut. Hmm. And so that's the need to be careful because most of the consequences in a conversation around racism do not accrue to white people. It primarily accrues to people of color. Um, and yes, there are issues for, for white people, again, around this shame that need to be contended with because it's not healthy for the white people. It's not healthy for people of color. It's not healthy for a movement for a better world. Um, yes, that, that really is something that, that, that needs to be dealt with and best to find ways to deal with it that aren't um, at 3 a.m. on Facebook in a conversation about race. And I imagine there are people listening who can relate to you know, the dilemma that many, many of us face in different ways, but certainly the dilemma of like, I want to, I want to contribute. I want to do something. So if yeah. I, if I don't respond, which I, I can appreciate what you're saying quite a bit about saying, you know, why do, why do certain, you know, white voices even have to be in the conversation? That's part of, that might be part of what honoring looks like, right? At certain points. But that that's hard to recognize, like the omission of commenting is not a social media metric that someone can say, you know, that was my activism for the day and, and nobody will see it. Yeah, it's I was just thinking about this the other day. It's some people would disagree with me, but I think. First of all, the things that we refrain from doing can be a valid contribution to the world. If you have a bad. Uh, certain bad habits, maybe you interrupt people a lot, for example, and then you just don't do that. That's a contribution. That's progress. That's good. Um, so, so there's this, but again, this, this comes back to this, this thing of learning. It's easy to uh, hit Google and search how to be a white ally. Oh, and then you get all the checklists, you get all the anti-racist bullet points and you read it and you have reactions inside you saying, but this isn't fair. And you know, my ancestors struggled too. And uh, uh, all these things. And it's very easy to then either push that. I mean, either push aside what you're l reading and say this is all garbage or to push aside your reactions and responses to it and then just say i'll just follow these scripts and the social justice scene is full of a lot of white people who just have the script there's a certain ideology they've learned to parrot it but they've never really wrestled with it they've never thought about it and what that means is there's no creativity they just know how to do the things they know how to do they'll call people out in the right way they'll do the right thing at the right you know and as you're saying sometimes silence is going to be the way to contribute sometimes the way to contribute is by speaking up so there's no formulas here there's no here's how you do it here's how you be a good white person here's how you be a good anything here's how you be a good human being because sometimes being a good human being might mean taking responsibility for something. And sometimes it might mean saying, no, I'm not responsible for that. So there's no, 
uh, there's no guarantees of any of this, but that requires a certain amount of learning. You know, it's the same. You could learn how to say a, a poem or a series of poems, a lot of poems in another language, but you only know how to say those poems. That's different than learning how to speak the language itself. And we're needing a certain fluency around these conversations about, uh, you know, well, to keep it focused around, you know, race and, and whiteness and racism, the, a certain spending time on the terrain, learning it so we can speak about it from some firsthand place rather than just regurgitating what we heard somebody else say that may or may not be appropriate in that moment. So what do you think it looks like to gain fluency and spend time on the terrain for somebody today who's like, yes, I, I just, I just need to right. take the step. Well, there's, we could, maybe we could imagine that there, it's not just one thing, but there's a number of things. And, uh, you know, I have my hair all braided back as it's getting longer and, uh, it's in you know simple French braid, three, three braids. And this is a, a fairly, you know, I think around the world, a fairly common human thing is this uh, braiding of things to make them stronger, to create ropes or uh, cords. And maybe there's three things we're trying to braid here. One could be our relationship to the human world. Another could be our relationship to the non-human world. And then third, our relationship to the unseen. And that all three of those might need to be in place for us to really know the terrain. Or we could say those are three types of terrain, even that we need to, to get to know. But in this in this braided way, almost like if you know those old uh, transparency projectors where you'd put a transparency and be projected onto the wall, uh, and then you could layer them one on top of the other. So this could be another way to say it. Three. Uh, layers of transparencies. So this relationship with the human world, it's good to notice how uh, the lack of diversity that we seem to have these days. We go to school and we're only with people our age, literally within one or two years. And that's the only people we're in class with, you know, for uh, 12 years of our life and university, probably similar type of thing. And so we don't, we're not with much younger people. We're not with uh, older people. So just by age, we're sequestered. And then, you know, uh, white people often tend to hang out with other white people, people of color with people of color. And so especially when we're, we've been the group that's been on the receiving end of so much privilege, uh, at least in the States, you know, at this time, well, there's a lot we don't see. It's part of the function of privilege and again i'm really not just talking white privilege mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is and maybe just good to step back just for a second to say that, that it's very easy to want to turn this into a permanent something uh, and it's just that when humans are on the receiving end of privilege that they did not earn uh, it's not good for them it spoils them this isn't a new dynamic. It is not unique to white people. The whiteness is one way that people get privileged. And there's plenty of ways. You know, I just remember seeing my niece. She was two and a half. It was her first Christmas that she had any semblance of human consciousness for, you know, hmm. and was kind of online and lucid and, and able to open gifts. And, and of course, everyone goes overboard for her first Christmas. And she opens a gift and she's delighted. But by the time she's hit the sixth gift, she's drunk. Mm. She's opening it, throwing it on the ground, moving on to the next. Her eyes are rolling in the back of her head. She's not really present anymore. My brother sees this and just says, hey, let's take a little break for a minute. She explodes. Uh, this mixture of rage and grief that she probably doesn't even understand. And why? Because the privilege got cut off. So we get entitled to this stuff so quick. Within minutes, we get so used to it. Um, so this is just, it's its not particular to being white. It just it also happens to show up here. And part of the privilege is there's a, a sequestering that happens. We're blind to the fact that we have it. 
And then we just hang out with other people like us. And so here's one practical way it could look. You start reading authors that aren't just white men or white people. You begin to read books by people of color and them talking about race or colonization to, to get some other perspective on it. Um, you start to befriend and go to communities or, uh, you, you know, connect with people who aren't like you. So one gets a broader, you know, with, with, within this one, uh, cord of a relationship to the human world, it's almost like if you think about it, that is a whole rope and there's one tiny strand, one hair of that rope. That's our relationship to other white people, but there's so much more. Mm. If you're only around, uh, I don't know, white heterosexual men who are rich and able-bodied all the time, then you've got a very narrow uh, swath of human experience. And there's so much more. It's one of the tragedies of our time. You know, old people get put away in homes and people struggling with mental illness get put sequestered away as well. And if you went to, and still to this day, if you go to most indigenous tribes, it's not that they don't have mental illness. It's not that they're not uh, visited by these things, but those people still live in the community. And you've got very old people and very young people, and they're all together. So you have this very broad array of the whole thing. You have people who life is going pretty good for, and you've got people who are uh, overwhelmed with grief from a recent death. Uh, you know, the whole thing, the whole range of human experiences there. And so that's something we could do to broaden it. But then there's also this relationship to the to the non-human world. It's so important if we're able to do it. Just time in nature, whatever nature we've got. Uh, if, you know, and I know a lot of us don't have much around us, but that connection is one of the ways we can know ourselves. And and you know, we could also understand that we're seen in a certain way by humans. Some of them hold us in very high regard. Some of them don't like us, but nature sees us in another way. And it's very important to be seen through the eyes of nature for us to know ourselves. And then there's this, this, um, unseen world. Uh, and so if, if you have any sense that there may be such a thing as our ancestors and that they're not just a figment of our imagination in whatever way you understand them genetically or spiritually or but there's some you know we're seen differently by them also and so if we're going to go for comfort uh that's a good place to go we can go to nature we can go to you know other white people have struggled with these things we can go to our own ancestry and our own ancestors uh for some kind of uh, sustenance and and, and guidance and support, all three of those. And, and what I see is the danger of white people start to feel ashamed. And so their solution is, I'll just get people of color to like me. I'll get indigenous people to like me. And that's, that's an immense amount of weight to put on people, especially when, again, those are people who've been hurt by people who look like you. It's not a good setup. It's not um, kind to those people uh, and uh, not a sustainable, workable approach. So I think as, as white people begin to grapple with this, very important to have people you can talk with honestly about these things, to push back, to wrestle with it. Um, because then you, then you learn something. And that wouldn't be bad. Yeah, going back to your original your original idea here that if the sort of the root of the goal is learning, then we're getting somewhere. Yeah. So is it a leap just so I'm understanding? Is it, is it a leap to say that another white construct that you're proposing here is, is that there's a couple, I know you, you may have touched on, but one of them is that we tended to minimize our diversity in, in certain ways, even in the emotional range of our community, even the, the emotional well-being of our community through the generational integration, yeah. all these different ways that we've sort of limited the opportunity, potentially even to create more 
heritage, more, more culture, more diversity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if, if it'd be proper to lay that all at the feet of whiteness, but it might not be improper to lay that at the feet of empire. And again, a very easy to, when I say empire, just imagine uh, Greece and Rome and Britain or European things. But Egyptians had an empire, plenty of Chinese empires, mm-hmm. Aztecs had, you know, and those empire is, uh, they're not always the nicest people. <laughs> this yeah. is where you start to take a turn for the more, um, the more brutal. It's great that this author and teacher who I love is a, a woman in the equine healing world that I'm, that I'm learning from. She writes about the pre and post conquest mindset of human tribes and individuals. It reminds me of what you're saying. There is like a shift in, in consciousness when, when we come from a place of conquest. Yes. That that's really the, the heart of some of these constructs and, and, you know, whiteness is a, is a current thread of, of that. Very well said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. So I just want to say also as an aside, this, this, this I'll cut out, but, um, I really appreciate that. It seems like a lot of your, your focus is and, and experiences with, um, indigenous folks. And that to me is, is such an important layered issue that I, I don't want to like co-opted mm. into, into, you know, this conversation, but I really, I want to give it space, um, potentially another time, or at least, you know, find a way to honor what you're doing, because I think that has, it's everything we're talking about, but it deserves its own sort of platform, I think. So I'm not trying to limit, you keep, you keep, I know you're, you're mm. trying to bring us back on topic around, around race, but I'm, I just want you to know I'm right there with you. I, I can well. see the broadness of it. I, to me, there is a, there is a direct tie-in with that. Um, maybe if I, I could say it this yeah. way. So we were talking about race. And part of the thing, if we're going to talk about race, that we have to name explicitly is that race is not real. It's yeah. a fiction. It's It was created as a way to stratify humans that there's certain ones on top, the Caucasians, and then, you know, at the bottom, you've got the, the Negroid and the Mongoloid in between, there various versions of this. And so it's, it's, it's not real. And so this idea of the white race is a double compound um, error. One is that whiteness is a social construct, and then the race is a social construct. And I see so many white people, uh, deep in self-loathing, often unacknowledged, going to all of the indigenous ceremonies, uh, you know, wearing the headdresses, wanting to take an indigenous name, wanting to go down that road. And part of the reason that that's done is, and some of us then will say this if you ask them, it, well, nothing good could have come from where I, I came from. I'm not indigenous. I don't come from any indigenous roots. But yes, we do. As white people, we come from indigenous roots. My Highland Scottish ancestors go back a few hundred years, had much more in common with indigenous people in North America than they have with me today in lifestyle. Hmm. Uh, So there's colonization. it It just went on earlier. You know, the Romans hit uh, England 2,000 years ago or so. So the colonization that's happening in North America that started a few hundred years ago began there much longer. But there are indigenous roots. There's an immense amount of uh, folklore and uh, song and dance and traditional textiles and hand skills that are still uh, alive in Europe. And so if white people are seeking out this connection to something indigenous, it's there. I mean, you could just pick one strand of your family, you know, heritage. And you would never even begin to explore the wealth of it in your lifetime. Mm. 
And that's after 2,000 years of conquest and colonization. But there's still so much there. And to the extent that we as white people are willing to betray the whiteness that is the cultural amnesia that has us forget that we actually came from anywhere in particular, Mm -hmm. to the extent that we're willing to question that and betray that, we become more recognizable to indigenous people as somebody who's from somewhere, somebody who is in touch with their own ancestry and heritage. Um, whiteness is the, the obliteration of the possibility. It's the end of memory because white people don't come from anywhere. And this is the unacknowledged self-hatred in uh, the white nationalist, white supremacist movement. Because what they'll tell you is, I'm so proud of my ancestors because my ancestors are white and look at what we did. Rhodes and you know Rome and Greece and the Parthenon and they go on and on with their list. But if you were to do, you know, one of those, I don't know, 23 and Me genetic tests on these people, what you would find is that virtually all of their ancestors, possibly all of their ancestors, were just peasant folk, you know. They were not a part of the empire. They were the indigenous people who were crushed under the heel of the very empire they're lauding perhaps until extremely recently, perhaps even still today, they're the poor white folks that are still being, you know, yeah. so it, there's this claim that we love our heritage, but the heritage they love is empire. And that's not a real heritage. Mm. It's a claimed one. It's an assumed one with a fake history to it. And a lot of spin and PR around it, about how good it's been for the world. Uh, but that's not our genuine ancestry. The ancestry of all, almost every white person uh, because there there weren't a lot of people at the top of empire. So the the ancestry of most of us are, is not that. Are you saying it's not genuine? You cut out, you cut out a little bit there. Are you saying it's not genuine simply because it was only a small percentage of people? Yeah. Well, to say like a, people might say, well, yeah, I'm white and I'm proud of, you know, my white heritage it's okay, but when you mean white, the translation actually what you mean is empire, because that's everything you're quoting. Here's what you, this is what you've never heard white nationalists say. Right. Uh, they never say, "Yeah, I'm proud of my white heritage." I mean, yeah, we, my ancestors, the applications of Russia, forty different varieties of apricots, and they just dry them on their roof there. And, they're, and they're, they're, my God, the polyphonic Georgian singing—you you break your heart. You never hear this, <laughs> and it's so obvious once I say it. You don't hear them. They don't talk about the amazing textiles work and the folklore and storytellers who could tell stories for days on end. Mm. They don't talk about that. No, they talk about empire. So what they're saying is that's what I claim is my ancestry. And the fact that, that literally no one in their family may ever have benefited from it and were almost certainly oppressed by it never seems to register. And, and so it's a sort of self-hatred because what they're saying is I love the empire, but I hate the chumps even who when, weren't that. Yeah. Even when I am one, <laughs> even when I am one. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, one thing I hear you saying is that potentially something that, you know, a white person who's inspired to do could, could do is to go back and really study their own genogram and ask parents and grandparents, if you have them and family members, like, where did you come from? What was it like where you lived? Where did, where did your parents come from? Like get to some roots and really start to embrace, um, what, what it was. Cause there, we all have some actual heritage and some, in some history. And, and I'm really appreciating this idea that's serving me that my whiteness is only, you know, what I choose to look at. And if I've rejected through this shame and self-hatred, just to look at, just to look at whiteness in that way is not, it's not only unhelpful for me, but it's really hurting the fabric of society. Well, again, I would make the distinction between the, this rejecting the construct of whiteness and rejecting our own ancestry. That those are two different things. Yeah. You know, that the whiteness is, is the thing that ha- whiteness is the rejection of our ancestry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, so you might begin to ask your family. And then you find there's certain things your family might not want to talk about yeah. or might not know. And then you realize that your great-grandfather uh, spoke Gaelic. But you never knew that before. And you realize that his son, the only way he figured it out is because he, you know, met his dad on the golf course one day and he was speaking with a friend from Scotland. They were speaking some language he didn't understand. It wasn't French and realized it must have been Gaelic. But he had never, ever talked to his son in Gaelic. Hmm. And so then you start to wonder, wait a minute, why would he not want his son to speak the language that he grew up with? Start to wonder about these things. Yeah. You know, if people are looking for some some things to wonder about, ask yourself, when did we when did my ancestors become white? And when, especially if you if you've been here a few generations in North America, why did we leave? Because hmm. it's very easy to again believe the hype. It was just opportunity and you know, uh, just good things that we left, or some greedy desire to colonize. But still, it begs the question, why leave? Mm. If things are great at home, well, sure, there's other opportunities elsewhere, but there's, the world is full of opportunities. So why leave? And what you find is the, um, uh, the Scottish Highland clearances, the Irish potato famine, a generally hellish uh, you know, medieval existence, war, famine. You find these things, people running most of the ones who came here. Yeah, there were some opportunists. Yes. And most of the people who came, I mean, Irish came aboard on these ships that were not even built for humans hmm. in a number so big and whole ships, everyone dies of typhus or half the crew and uh, people die of uh, the Black Plague on the way over here. And they got on a boat to come here knowing this might be so. So what has you leave, you know, and then you fast forward and you see the, the struggles of, of immigration we have today and refugees and people going to enormous risk getting on boats, hoping they're going to be able to, you know, and drowning at sea. Why would you take the risk? There must be something you're running from. And this is a lot of our ancestry. And then you start to wonder about what was that? You know, what were the conditions that created that happening and then you start to learn something and then maybe you uh, have something more useful to say and can come from a more, I don't know, informed uh, and uh, understanding place when, when talking about these issues. Well, just even in the parallels of what we're going through right now with immigration in yeah. the U.S., there's, there's just like a shared reality. Yeah, there's more yeah, of a, there's, there's an actual shared reality. If I, if I could say, well, you know, gosh, my great grandfather went through this and he lost so and so on the way over here just to get me here. Like that's a different landing point of empathy than I deserve to be here. I'm entitled to be here and you're not. <laughs> right. Because I got here first. I got here first. And you know what? We're good. We're at, we're at capacity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's um, and I, I'm, I remember talking with a friend of mine who's now a senator in Alabama of all things this is 20 years ago. And she, she'd uh, been exploring her roots, uh, her African roots, you know, gone to Africa. And, and I remember talking with her and feeling such a kinship in both of our explorations that some, certain things she was saying about it resonates. Oh, I'm going through the exact same thing. I'm, you know, I'm asking myself the same questions. You know, and you might wonder, what was it that my ancestors spoke, if not English, before? Yeah. And you might consider learning some of that language. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen very, I've seen many indigenous people touched when they see a white person introduce themselves in a circle in their ancestral language, you know, and speak to and about their ancestors uh, in that way. Um. You know, maybe to, to tie some of this together, it's these conversations around colonization, around racism are so painful. They're so apt to explode. And it's so important, at least on our end, that we don't engage in a conversation about colonization in a way that continues the colonization. 
that we don't engage in a conversation about racism that reinforces the racism and the power dynamics thereof. And so one of the ways of many, you know, uh, to contend with this is coming to our own old timers, coming to our own ancestry and learning that, uh, very helpful in understanding the dynamics of colonization from a, just a different way, a different lens, a different understanding. And part of, I think the, the importance of this is if one gets caught in the, Oh my God, look at what white people have done to the world. And yeah, it's been horrendous. And there was a time when your ancestors weren't white and they probably got colonized by somebody too. And it's been a, you know, uh, the colonization, this gift that keeps on giving, you know, Romans do it, Greeks do it here and then the Romans do it there and then the British do it here and then etc. So yeah, it, to come to understand these things through our own stories, through our own ancestry, I just think it's, it's such a, it's a, it's a missing piece. It's not the only piece, but it is a vitally missing piece in these conversations for white people these days. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. There's, there's, um, a need to wrap up for today. And I'm so just like, there's so many more threads I want to follow. So I hope we get to connect again. If you can bring us home, sharing a piece, um, just very, very concisely, you're an author of two online blogs, Dear White Man and Healing from Whiteness. And I'd love to just end with something like what's the most hopeful, what's the most promising, um, like maybe like pleasantly surprising aspect that you've witnessed, um, writing those two blogs so far and, you know, how can people support them and connect with them? Oh, well, it's very kind of you to say, I, I, I don't know how much support they're needing. Uh, here's what I would say if you've been in some way inspired or something uh, has stirred in you from this conversation, better to look locally and say, who are the people of color and indigenous people that could use some help locally? Maybe there's a chapter of black lives matter. Maybe there's almost certainly some indigenous people locally or nearby who are almost certainly getting screwed who could use some help and good friends in these times. So if you're inspired, go there in that way, do that. Well, there've been a number of very kind comments that people have made on it over time, uh, both from people of color and uh, white people. I think it's good to know that as you speak out on these things, uh, to the extent that you do, and, and particularly if you can do it without the self-hatred that, that nobody needs, uh, that it's, helps people of color, indigenous people feel less alone because a lot of them feel very, very alone uh, in this uh, time that we're in, especially without the support of white people or understanding of white people. So as you speak out, know that there's that. So there's been that, which is encouraging. But the to me, the most hopeful thing is there have been a number of times now where I've been trolled by uh, young white men and then met up with them afterwards. And we talked and there was an immense openness and a, a shift, I think, that came in their understanding about the need for better conduct in these conversations online, but also maybe their understanding of the issues, too. I remember one trolled me. He was drunk at the time, but still was concerned about these issues. And we sat on my porch for an hour hmm. and I just said, look, it's just that you're so consequential as a white man in these conversations, that's all. Your words carry a weight that, uh, like it or not, you don't even want it, but it's there. And he, uh, it was such a beautiful time. And when he left, I could tell that something landed for him, that he was seeing these issues differently and seeing the need to approach them in a different way. So so it, it doesn't happen often. But maybe, I don't know, once a year I have one of those real connections with somebody on that and and a shift. And so it's it's good. And this is such a role that white people can play 
because it's often put on people of color, indigenous people to be the ones to have these conversations. And I just think we're probably better set up to do it because we're less triggered by the issue. It's not so personally painful to us. And so we, we got more uh, spoons as they say for this conversation. Hmm. Ted, thank you so much for all your wisdom, knowledge and, and uh, personal sharing and for all the work you're doing in the world. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you. Well, very kind of you to invite me and imagine that I might have something to say of use. And uh, yeah, blessings on your on your uh, your endeavor here to, to bring this good news and these stories to the world because heaven knows you just need to open Facebook for two seconds before you see an onslaught of terrible news telling you that the apocalypse is coming and and uh, so good for people to be uh, seeing what's also true is that there's a lot of beauty and a lot of uh, good work happening in the world too. To find out more about Tad's work, you can go to healingfromwhiteness.blogspot.com or search on Facebook for his page titled Dear White Men. My questions for you are these. If you identified as white before listening to this interview, what have you learned about your whiteness that feels useful? If you don't identify as white, how might this interview help you in your life? This has been the Supergivers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. To hear past episodes, you'll find the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you're inspired enough to write a brief review on one of these platforms, please do. They help. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.